0: Welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host Daniel Harowitz here in the house the day after Memorial Day. What a beautiful weekend it was. Weather was great. Just time to reflect upon the importance of this country, the importance of the sacrifices our soldiers have made. You know, I'm happy with all the feedback a lot of you guys have given me. It's really just given me the strength to 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 fight on in this business because I'm I'm honestly just very exhausted and this is really just the first part of my vacation. I'm in the house today, but I'm going to take off the next two days or so just to recharge my batteries, spend some family time, and then you know be back in full service Friday, the end of the week. So this might be our only episode this week. But uh, thanks for your feedback on my Memorial Day manifesto. Um, you know, I'm thinking... In, in addition to the problems of putting our soldiers into meat grinders without any regard for the value of their lives, certainly weighed against any possible strategic interest or outcome from these civil wars, is the question of what are these people fighting for? Well, you know, since the dawn of our republic, they've been fighting to preserve our republican values so we could have a republic built built upon the principles of the preamble of the declaration which we're going to be celebrating in about another month on july 4th so we could celebrate those values of life liberty property and governance by the consent of the governed and i mentioned that last one you know people think of the three the big three life liberty and property pursuit of happiness uh mentioned in the declaration but there's a couple more principles mentioned in the preamble and one principle is popular sovereignty governance by the consent of govern that all decisions have to flow directly from the citizenry or by the representative government that was empowered through these positions through through, through this government that we set up and you know I wrote a book last year stolen sovereignty on how the unelected judges are not only stealing the individual sovereignty this governance by the consent of the governed because all the important decisions are now being made out of the reach of the people by the unelected judges but they're stealing national sovereignty as well our jurisdictional sovereignty the ultimate decision that any society makes is the, the, the rules and regulations governing who, if anyone, and under what circumstances, are we going to allow people in to become the future citizenry and thereby have a hand in making future decisions on all sorts of policies. Immigration at its core, more than any other issue, has to flow directly from the people at arm's length from the people through their elected representatives. It cannot, it, it cannot flow beyond that. And certainly, like we've said before, the president and Congress, the two political branches of government, make those decisions. And even the president could only shut down immigration. He can't add on immigration without Congress, without the people's representatives. And that's why, for 200 years, the courts have said that they have no ability to get involved in, in immigration policy. So I wrote my book last year, Stolen Sovereignty, still available at Amazon, because I started to realize, based on a lot of things going on even in the Obama administration, that if we didn't get the courts under control, the entire concept of the role of the courts, they will now venture into immigration policy and decide who gets to come in and force us against our will to bring in anyone and everyone and thereby nullify national sovereignty, national security. And <laughs> honestly, I knew my book was a big deal, and that's why I wrote it, because you know, I write hundreds of columns a year, so I figured, what's the point of me writing a book? What, what's different about a book? So I tried to pick what I felt was the most consequential issue of our time, but I never imagined it would happen so quickly in su- such a spectacular fashion. That, you know, Alexander Hamilton, when he was contrasting Um, I believe in Federalist 51 when he was contrasting the role of the courts – I'm sorry, the role of a president versus the role of a king. You know, Many people were scared – sorry, this was Federalist 69. Many people were scared at the time. The Anti-Federalists were worried that the constitutional system we were setting up would give the president too much authority. I mean they they never imagined – forget about unelected judges. That wasn't even on their mind, and I'm going to get to that a little later, what, what they thought would happen with the courts. But they thought we'd have a runaway uh, executive, a president that acts like a king. And Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 69 set out to explain all the differences between a president and a king. And it's amazing that one of the contrasts he made was that the one, meaning a president, can confer no privileges whatever. The other, meaning a king, can make denizens of aliens. (laughs) I'm laughing to myself. Um... Get, and the idea was that it had to it had to flow from Parliament or, in our case, Congress. Only the people's representatives could could confer um, citizenship or a path to citizenship upon people. And and here we have the unelected courts. You know, you had the Fourth Circuit decision last week. Now, literally, making denizens of potentially seven point three billion people in the world. This court court opinion last week in the Fourth Circuit, it was the most radical opinion I have ever seen. And, you know, we've covered dozens upon dozens, possibly even 100 court cases over the last two years, and they're all absurd. But this one has the most devastating consequences if left unchecked. It's even worse than some of the other cases we've seen on the immigration order, which are bad enough. But I I, want to step back just, just to look broadly at what's happening. I, I've been writing all these columns. I wrote my book the last two years, really since the gay marriage decision warning that if a court could redefine marriage, if a court could redefine human sexuality, which is now doing codifying transgenderism into the Constitution to civil rights, well, there's nothing a court can't do. And if the other branches are just going to roll over and, and defer to the courts and, and like I'm going to mention in a minute, overly defer to the courts meaning they don't even push back against them and wait for the courts to come and force them so to speak the court can't force anything but force them to abide by it they just preemptively surrender everything hey take the kitchen sink i'll give you this whatever you want i'll comply with anything you want even beyond what you ever asked me to do so of course the courts are going to take that prerogative once you crown them king and also, once they do not have to face electoral electoral reprisal because they don't stand for election, so, hey, it's a win-win. If you're a left-wing activist, so there's, you know, as much as you'd want to accomplish stuff legislatively or through presidency, there's a limit to what you're going to do because you're scared of elections. But if you're a judge and then the other branch is basically convey the message to the courts so that you could do whatever you want and that will be regarded as the law of the land, not just the Supreme Court but but a puny district judge an appellate judge could put a nationwide injunction on national sovereignty and could therefore mandate that we bring in a certain number of immigrants, certain type of immigrants certain circumstances of course they're going to jealously use that prerogative if you give it to them you know it's amazing how Even when Democrats are in power, the legislative process is very slow. And it was designed that way. It's hard to really enact change in this country, unlike in many other countries. Yet the courts are inducing what I warn about in my book, based on Scalia's writing in Obergefell. Social transformation without representation. They are so dramatically, radically, and and with such speed, Read reconstituting our society and our country without batting an eyelash. There's no legislative process. There's no input from the public. There's no debate over the consequences. They have been crowned until now the king of all domestic policy, and now with these cases, they are crowning themselves the kings of national security. So we have reached the point where the courts now control all election law, warned about that if I get if I have time here we'll go into some of the North Carolina cases but they basically throwing they're throwing out every Republican redistricting map every election integrity law so voter ID limiting early voting um, you know just cleaning the voter rolls preventing non citizens from voting nope can't do that can't do that so they're ensuring that Democrats win elections they're obviously you know this is old hat that they're in charge of all social issues abortion marriage religious liberty you name it they have it you know in addition before we delve into the fourth circuit another big case i hope to write about this week is a district judge just threw out the sentencing of the dc sniper lee malvo the, the, the I, I mean unbelievable so originally he was he should have gotten the death penalty but you know because of the courts he didn't and now they're saying because he was only 17, just shy of the age of, of uh, being, an, being an adult, when at the time he was convicted, well, life in prison without parole, that's a violation of the Seventh Amendment. I'm sorry, the Eighth Amendment. That, that, that's the violation of cruel and unusual punishment. So could you imagine that? That basically we've had for our entire con- our entire history, we've always had the death penalty. We've had life in prison without parole for minors that committed um, heinous crimes. All of a sudden, two hundred years later, they could throw it out, and 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 that's the thing. Not only do the courts have the sole and final say over the Constitution based on what the other branches of government have gratuitously afforded them, but they could reshape that document at any time so it's not like you can say well what do you mean for 200 years we have settled law like this we've settled law that you know a country has the right to determine who comes in and and that the courts themselves have said for so many years that the courts have no say and it's an uninterrupted stream of settled case law where the courts have referred to it justice robert jackson justice frank um uh, felix frankfurter in the 50s that that this is the most settled area of law no, we could unsettle it overnight. No, we've moved on from that. This is what we're doing now. So similar thing here. No, th- th- this is cruel and unusual punishment. So it, it's so radical. That was in the in the case of, um, you know, Miller v. Alabama in 2011. Then two years ago in Montgomery v. Louisiana, and this is another screwball by, by uh, Justice Roberts, he wrote this opinion to apply it retroactively. So – You know, until now, when the courts have, um, you know, redefined the Constitution, so they just do it henceforth. But but recently, there's been a trend where they're now applying their usurpations retroactively. So they read. I mean, you can imagine all the people serving in prison, um, you know, over the last number of decades for for murders they committed when they were minors. These are really, I mean, the toughest of the toughest dudes. All their sentences are now reopened now, including the D.C. sniper. I mean, and, and, and the court threw it out. I mean, th- these people could be eligible for parole at some point. I mean, these basic societal decisions are being decided by the courts. And, and, and what I warned about is that if Congress and the president and the attorney general don't start pushing back and, and saying, look, we're a separate, at least a co-equal branch. I mean, the courts are really the weakest branch, but at least we're on par. And if they don't start educating people on the role of the courts, and if they don't start using Article 3, Section 2, exceptions and regulations to accept and regulate the jurisdiction of the courts, then there is nothing a court cannot and will not do and will not elicit any reaction. And and forget about the Supreme Court. Even the lower courts. And And, and the reason why I keep pointing that out is because the Supreme Court at least – the institution is mandated by the Constitution. Now, the jurisdiction is almost completely subject to congressional exceptions and regulations. But um, at least the institution is there with someone called a chief justice sitting at some sort of a desk adjudicating you know, some sort of cases. But the lower courts on a federal level, I mean, they're all – they're a creation of Congress. So the notion that a lower court could stand above Congress, the president, the attorney general – national sovereignty national security it blows the mind it's something our founders never never imagined yet here we are with the lower courts doing that and the the bigger news is that the other branches are now listening and they're they're listening over and beyond what they need to listen even under their own system so so let's unpack this here the fourth circuit Court of Appeals decision, ten to three last week, was the most radical opinion I've ever seen. In my book, I warned about what I called the final frontier in judicial tyranny, where, you know, the courts are going to take everything they've done to the Constitution over the last number of decades, BS rights that they've created while trampling upon the real rights, and copy and paste them and give them to all 7.3 billion tr- um, trillion people. I say trillion people, <laughs> 7.3 billion people. I'm thinking of, of the federal budget, so I'm using trillions. But, um, you know, all the billions of people in this world and create an affirmative right to immigrate. But that's old hat now. The courts have done that. They've created an affirmative right to immigrate. What the courts did here is even worse. They created a right for any muslim american or even not just citizen but even a muslim immigrant to sue in court and get standing to say that i feel stigmatized by a policy even a national security policy of this administration and if the courts could determine in their estimation that that policy in the abstract you know not not specifically related to this guy This plaintiff, but that policy in the abstract makes Muslims feel uncomfortable and, and is too focused on Muslims. It renders that policy a violation of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause, and you're establishing a national religion, and therefore a plaintiff could shoot directly at a president's national security policy and shoot it down. The ramifications of this are unbelievable. Now, before I go into the ramifications, let me just explain a little bit more specifically what I mean by that. So what, what, how do you create an affirmative right to immigrate, which the courts have essentially done? You say, Ahmad, you know, Abdul Jabbar, living on some hilltop in a shack in Somalia, has a right to immigrate. So his relative could get standing in court and say, oh, you know, I want my guy to be able to come in here. And the courts say, yes, he could come in here. Right. That, that is nuts. That's that's bonkers. That's that's crazy. As we noted, that violates the preamble of the declaration that violates jurisdictional sovereignty, popular sovereignty, governance by the consent of the governed, social compact, social contract, 200 years of case law, most settled. Year. I mean, that's nuts. But, but this case was over and beyond that because there was no legitimate case or controversy. Indeed, the three plaintiffs in this case, their relatives were not denied entry. Few of them were actually let in. They were being processed, and others, they weren't yet denied. There, there was no grievance. There was no valid grievance to, to bring your case in the court. So what was the problem? Why, why, why was there a lawsuit in this case? Well, the people said, I, felt, I, I feel stigmatized. By your general policy of immigration. So this wasn't an immigration thing because, again, the case or controversy wasn't immigration because they were being let in. There was no valid grievance. It was that – just the fact that in general, even if you let in my relatives and I don't have standing but, – but but here's what I do have standing for. I feel – I, I, I feel – um. Stigmatized. I mean, they, they, they literally use this. I feel like an outsider. I feel anxious. These are all words I'm taking either from the opinion or from the briefs filed in the, in, in the case that the court, the judges wound up agreeing to. So therefore, that renders your policy against Muslims. And if your policy is against Muslims, it violates the First Amendment and therefore it gets invalidated. So what this means is it's not just immigration. It, if I were a smart lawyer that 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 read into this opinion, what I could easily do with this without any extrapolation, without any exaggeration. Take the words of this opinion and say I'll get a plaintiff who's who's a muslim, muslim citizen, muslim uh LPR and say I believe your foreign policy, your diplomatic policy, your military policy is an unconstitutional violation of the Establishment Clause. Why is it that almost every theater we're in, every place we're engaged in combat and have our soldiers is in a Muslim country, whether it's Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen now – these are all Muslim countries. Now, actually, I wouldn't mind such a lawsuit to get us the heck out of here. But I'm just saying, I just want to give you a, a sense of how nutty this is. That they could say, look, I feel stigmatized. You know, everyone's all riled up in this country. Like, and this is even more than immigration because this, we're at war with Muslims. I, I feel anxious. Well, why don't we go to war anywhere else? Why don't we have troops on the ground in North Korea or China or Russia? You see, that means that our military policy is a violation of the Establishment Clause. That that is exactly what they did with immigration. Again, it's not like, oh, you have have to allow this person in because they were allowed in. There was no case or controversy, which I'm going to get to in a minute, is the key to why the Trump administration has an out not to even follow this and to keep, keep doing what they're doing, but they refuse to do so, and they're actually expanding upon it. But that's how radical this is. I mean, think about it. You you know what you could actually do with this? Any American Jew should be able to sue against the two-state solution, the State Department's diplomatic policy with with, uh, the PLO, creating a PLO state. How come there is no other policy we have that affects no other religion that says that we are going to create a state out of Judea where Jews will not be able to live. In fact, they're going to have to throw them out, disinter their cemeteries like they usually have to do. And that that's a racist policy. What other religion has to undergo that? Where you're not allowed to live in your own homeland? Our State Department is pursuing a foreign policy that stigmatizes Jews. Now, before you laugh. There is a much stronger case – now, obviously, it's, it's BS, but I'm just saying if you go down their alley, there's a much stronger case to be made for this than for what the, courts, what the plaintiffs successfully did in the Fourth Circuit and other cases, um, shooting at immigration policy. Because let me tell you, you look at those FBI statistics, you have data to show that per capita Jews are the victims of hate crimes more than anywhere else. I mean, the, the college campuses, the violence that Jews face now, certainly the unease and anxiety that they have to face due to the stigmatization of Israel as an occupying force, that they're occupying Judea and Samaria, the BDS movement and everything. I mean, you want to talk about stigma. That is a, that is a global stigma. Certainly Jews in Europe, but even Jews in America on college campuses um, have to really uh, – I mean, they, they, they really incur a lot of hatred. Because of our own State Department's policy of labeling Israel as an occupier. That policy is an unconstitutional violation of the Establishment Clause. <laughs> hey, I mean, if we, it, it, it seems like the, the, the two-state solution, the Palestinian state stuff, is too big to fail. Nothing could ever end that. And maybe this is an avenue. Take it to the Fourth Circuit. <laughs> But, but, I mean, I'm, I'm not even laughing here. This is not an extrapolation. This is what it does. Now, of course, they're not going to do it because, again, it's outcomes-based Then they're not consistent. It's only for Muslims because it's, a, it's all political. So they're not even going to be consistent in their own insanity. But this is what we've done with the courts. But, again, could you really blame the courts? These judges are nutcases, and they know they can get away with it. But the other branches of government don't do anything. So I want to show you the out here. I wrote a column noting how the Trump administration has an obligation to ignore this case. They're Daniel, you mean ignore the courts? Well, first of all, yes. In general, I do think we should ignore the courts when they get involved in political um, decisions, especially when you're not dealing with an individual. You're dealing with the other branches of government. They're not bound by a co-equal branch, certainly the lower courts that are created by Congress. But I'm not even saying that here. This is – hear me out. This case, there's something special. There's nothing to listen to. There is no case or controversy. It's hypothetical future immigration. It makes no sense. So let me break this down. The first immigration order that Trump issued beginning of February – so there you could theoretically say as wrong as the courts were, there was a valid case or controversy to listen to. So there were people stuck at the airport that they already had visas to come in. Now, again, legally I've gone through this many times. We could cut it off even after we give them visas. In fact, it's written on the back of the visas that the issuance of a visa does not entitle them to a right to, to enter the country. They could always be denied. But okay, fine. There's, the courts say – you know Ahmad senior has a right to come in i'm granting him relief so j- just to back up here what what distinguishes a court from a legislature what distinguishes the judicial power from the legislative power when you know when when an article 1 says the legislative power shall vest in the congress an article 2 the executive power shall vest in the Executive branch, the president, the judicial power shall be vested in a court. The judicial power doesn't mean I make decisions. This is not good. Um, you have to do this or I'm vetoing this. There's no judicial veto. That's, that's what the president does on, on, a, on a new law or new proposal passed by, by Congress. He, he has that prerogative to veto. What, what a court can do is when there's a valid standing – with a valid grievance that could be redressed, the court could say, look, you know, you have a valid grievance. I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to give you relief. But two things, A, there has to be a valid case to latch onto. They can't just shoot at a, at an abstract policy. Like I don't like your policy towards, I've said this before, like, you know, the 10 commandments, if you have a, um, a replica of the Ten Commandments outside of your courthouse, outside of your city hall. A court can't strike that down because there's no valid plaintiff. There's no, there's no injury there. You might not like it, but th- there's nothing to. It's not a legislature, and it's not an executive veto. I could say you have, uh, you know, you as a plaintiff. I'm going to give you relief. Now, why do we? lazily refer to courts as striking down laws when they can't do it well because if it's something that where there's an easy application well ahmad wasn't let in and he's stuck at the airport but another 500 other people are stuck at the airport and they have similar circumstances so de facto we're going to apply that as precedent and that's why the other branches usually would listen to it but a couple things first off as i always noted that when the courts venture into something blatantly political. That's a broad public policy. It's not an individual criminal case or civil case or bankruptcy law. You know, the understanding was that the, the other branches of government could use their more robust powers of the enforcement and, and, and the purse to fight back. And you know, we're, we're going to do something else. We swore the same oath to uphold the Constitution. Our Constitution says we need to do something else. We don't read the Constitution like you. Because, frankly, you guys don't believe in the Constitution. But even, if it, but, but even beyond that, there has to be an application. And, and this is where you should at least push the envelope and wait until the courts make you. Now, they can't really make you because they don't have an enforcement mechanism. But you know what I mean, politically, the way we view it. So in this case, what happened? A bunch of people, students, and my relatives want to come in. I'm scared they're not going to come in. It's not that they were denied like in the first case, the first executive order. There was no denial. So there is no legitimate case or controversy, and indeed, in these cases, it's moot. This was the um, – Judge uh, A.G., one of the three dissenting judges, made this point. There is no case or controversy. There's no ripeness. There's no grievance. There's no injury in fact. There's no redressable grievance here. So the, the, the decision is null and void. There's nothing you, – you can't just say, I don't like that policy. It's racist. Oh, okay, well, that, that's, that's a political argument in, in a legislature. Now, over and beyond that, I mean, as we noted, they, they just said they felt stigmatized. So I don't like your policy. Okay, so let the guy in. But he is being let in. But then the bigger question is, what is the application? So the courts did this, therefore, I do, I do. as the executive branch of government, I need to do what? No one has ever answered that question because the courts didn't say so affirmatively. So let, let me give an example. Let's say I say – um, let, let's say we, Congress passes a law and says we're gonna go out and send federal agents out to punch anyone in the face whose name is Bob Smith. So Bob Smith goes to court, and says, "What do we need? This is a this is a you know life, liberty, property, unalienable rights, bill of attainder, um, blatantly unconstitutional." The court says, "Yeah, you're right. So I give you, I'm giving you a an exemption. I, I am blocking the implementation of this law as it relates to you." Now the thing is. It becomes de facto national policy because there's a seamless application of that law. Well, anyone named Bob Smith has the same is in the same boat. So you have to stop that, meaning the act of punching Bob Smith in the face is categorically stopped. Even though a court can't really strike anything down, but you could say if you would want to follow the court. Even if you want to follow the court, there's what to follow. How do you follow it? you can't punch anyone in the face. That 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 act is categorically banned. In this case, or in the first case of the executive order, that act of anyone stuck at an airport who was already issued a visa, you have to let in. Okay. But in this case, what are you gonna tell me? The act of denying a visa to any futuristic people? I mean, you can't tell me that. I mean every day, DHS under every administration in the State Department, they approve of some people, they disapprove for all sorts of reasons. Not just national security. It's public charge. There's health risks. I mean, it's up to their discretion. You can't tell me we have to let in anyone in the world anytime. And this gets into refugee resettlement even more. The president sets the cap. See, you can't shut off Im- refugees. Now, by the way, refugees applies to everyone equal. He, it wasn't just from Muslim countries. So whatever that even means. But, okay, so what do I affirmatively do? Right, let's say I, I – I, I, believe the courts are God, lower courts are God, I wanna follow whatever you say. What do I do? What do I affirmatively do? The answer is there is no order. There is no tangible order of what do I, so so what you could do is, okay, so I'll let in five refugees a week. Instead, this administration has gratuitously let in 850 to 900 a week, and now bombshell New York Times report, I wrote about this today, that the State Department is going to almost double that to 1,500 a week. Why? (laughs) So so what I am hearing third hand is that the lawyers who are a bunch of clowns for this White House are saying that in order to adhere to the court order, you need to bring in as many as were appropriated for by Congress. Unbelievable. (laughs) i mean I, at least wait for the court to say that it didn't say that at least wait until they bring another lawsuit and say you're not bringing in enough refugees so how many and then the court says 1500 a week <laughs> i mean at, at least see here's the thing at least that will expose the courts even more you know they'll be somewhat embarrassed to look like a legislature i mean i'm not saying that they, they won't do it they probably will do it but this is why the courts do what they do because there's no pushback And when i say pushback i don't even mean not to listen i mean just at least Go up to the line and say, all right, so I'll let in this plaintiff. I'll let in this guy. I'll let in this guy. But you'll continue to, you know, shut off for most. Wait wait for them to come back with another lawsuit and another and a definitive order. But no, they preemptively surrender even more than they have to. Now, why is it? Let me ask you another question. Why is it that this administration... Or put another, put another way, why is it that Congress appropriated funding? Well, the president never asked for a defund. I was yelping about this for three months. And then he wound up signing that bill. So, yeah, it's Congress's fault. It's his fault, too. But then in his own budget for next year, the aspirational budget, this is what I want. This is my opening bid. He funds enough refugee resettlement for 50,000 refugees. So, of course, you're not going to get better than that. He should zero out funding for next year. The refugee resettlement contractors, were they were actually pretty happy. They sent out an email blast praising the budget. This is a colossal betrayal. Now, I don't want to get into the general, we, you know, we've discussed this last couple of podcasts, the general betrayals, you know, the Paris Agreement. I mean, maybe Trump will head in a better direction, but what Gary Cohn was saying, what Gary Cohn was saying about coal, Overseas at the at the at the G7, promoting green energy. The State Department uh, ramping up HB2, um, H2B visas, low skilled visas. The debt ceiling betrayal, where Mnuchin is demanding we raise the debt ceiling unconditionally, which by the way voids out the entire budget proposal because the whole point was, oh, Trump has great budget cuts. Yeah, well, how are you going to fight for it if you don't use the lead? leverage of something like the debt ceiling. There's a lot of betrayals going on here that, of course, the conservative media will never talk about. The talk about defending Jared from the Russian allegations. And I'm not thinking he's guilty, but why do we have to defend the man who is destroying this administration and is a big liberal? Just let it go. Focus on what we need to. And what we need to focus on is the judicial tyranny. But we only have judicial tyranny because we have a political crisis in which one political party won't fight back against the courts because they love politically what the courts are doing. They love the political outcome and they're not intellectually honest about cheating to get your political outcome. And then the other party, well, the Republicans are broken. They won't fight back against anything. And that's how the courts are able to do everything they want. You know, I'm gonna read I'm gonna and end here and, and you know, while uh while I'm getting my book out here just read read for you a a page um you know from stolen sovereignty just uh you know just want to want to make our pitch again if you want to see me riled up on on camera now i don't know why you'd want to see it because i look kind of goofy when i get when i rant on camera but if you want to see me in person i'm on steve davis's show every week you got to get CRTV, 89 bucks a year if you if you type in promo code Horowitz H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z that is H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z get 10 bucks off your CRTV subscription also I want you guys to subscribe get your free information kit on how to invest in gold from Birch Gold go to birchgold.com forward slash C-R-B-I-R-C-H gold.com and this 16 page guide really reveals how you could diversify your portfolio. Again, certainly you don't want to put all your money in precious metals, but it's definitely your best hedge against the collapse of our republic. Unless the courts ban investing in gold. Well, you know, <laughs> hey, look, you know, if they could control foreign policy, it's certainly not a stretch for them to c- control fiscal policy. But anyway, you know, at the end of Chapter Nine, which is the main chapter where I talk about Article Three, Section Two, how Congress has the power to fight back against the courts, and everything, you know, I ask the question: Didn't the Founders envision this? Did the Founders kind of um, ever ever envision such a day where you know the, the the courts would do this? And and indeed, the Anti-Federalists had this problem. They said, wait a minute, judicial review is going to turn into judicial exclusivity. And they, and they, they were pretty prophetic, Robert Yates and the Anti-Federalist Papers, um, Anti-Federalist number 15, he was, he was just very prescient. Um, and I said like this, I'm just quoting from my book, undoubtedly Yates was prophetic in predicting the judicial time bomb. But in defense of Hamilton, Madison, and some of the other Federalists, they never conceived of a scenario in which the legislature would allow the courts who lack the force and will of execution the power of the purse to encroach upon their power even to a fraction of the degree it has the bottom line is that the founders never envisioned that members of congress would not defend their power from the encroachment of the weaker judiciary in dismissing concerns over judicial encroachment hamilton hamilton observed the following and i'll i'll put this quote in um in the show notes but i want i want to read to you and we'll end with this i'm going to read to you this quote from hamilton it's pretty astounding i mean i'm just saying i mean it is it's just unbelievable they never they never envisioned a beta society we have now that would roll over he said, so, so again, he's responding to, to those that said the judiciary is going to gain too much power and become the sole and final veto over national policy. And he, and he said – and by the way, this was the – it's Federalist 81 where Hamilton discusses the exceptions and regulations clause of how it's complete and Congress could totally do what they want to the courts. But, but he said even, even, even foundationally be, before exercising that, they just wouldn't listen because he said like this. It may be in the last place observed that the supposed danger of judicial encroachments on the legislative authority, which has been upon many occasions reiterated, is in reality a phantom. Particular misconstructions and contraventions of the will of the legislature may now and then happen, but they can never be so extensive as to amount to an inconvenience. Think about that. I mean, we have national sovereignty, national security, election law, marriage, redefining sexuality. You name it, letting, you know, terrorists out on bail and whatever. It won't even amount to an inconvenience or in any sensible degree to affect the order of the political system. Wow. (laughs) Hamilton says it will never happen. How? How does he know that? This may be inferred with certainty. From what? From, quote, the general nature of the judicial power. We spoke about that, understanding what it is and what it isn't. From the objects to which it relates, cases and controversies. From the manner in which it is exercised, just on that case, not on a national policy. From its comparative weakness, doesn't have the power of the purse, doesn't have the power to execute. And and, and, and from its total incapacity to support its usurpations by force. It doesn't have a police force. And in fact, it's the president and attorney general who enforce their decisions. So how could they... They never envisioned such a thing, and yet the other branches of government are just doing what they want. The other branches of government are, are are preemptively giving the courts more than they even asked for. You know, Madison always believed that the will of the legislature in the states would easily trump the power of the judiciary. Madison said the following: This was in a letter. I'll dig it up for the show notes. I forget where the letter – who the letter was to. But he said, it is not probable that the Supreme Court would long be indulged in a career of usurpation opposed to the decided opinions and policy of the legislature. Nor do I think that Congress, even seconded by the judicial power, can without some change in the character of the nation succeed in durable violations of the rights and authorities of the states. Without some change in the character of the nation folks. Therein lies the answer, how we have fallen so far, because there's a change in the character of the nation. We allow it to happen. What the judiciary is doing now to the other branches of government is literally like a 100-pound woman picking up a 300-pound wrestler and body slamming the guy into submission. That can't, that can't happen unless you let it happen. It's It's just... And that's the problem. So we could continue blaming the courts, but yeah, I mean, if you put liberals on a court, they'll, they'll do their thing if you allow them to to exercise that power. They have no force. They have neither force nor will. I am telling you, folks, this is the single most important issue of our time. The single most important issue of our time. We will not have a country left. We will not have sovereignty left. We will not be able to win elections. Congress tomorrow, first of all, they could ignore, the other branches could just ignore it. But if you don't feel comfortable doing that, Article 3, Section 2, you could strip. And, and the lower courts, notice how Madison was talking about the Supreme Court. They never envision the lower courts, it's, it's, they never had such power. They're completely controlled by Congress. Congress could strip the lower courts of immigration tomorrow. You know another idea I'm promoting Congress could route all immigration cases to the 8th Circuit Court of Appeals. Why do I pick that court? That court is the one court that conservatives control and in fact, now that Trump is filling um uh, a vacancy there, there will not be a single democrat appointee on that court. So every other court pretty much we've lost for a generation, that court we have for a generation. That that's one way of doing it. So I'm going to keep working to find members of Congress willing to put this up. I'm going to try to get this out to the attorney general and and Bannon and the administration the best I can. So we're going to keep working on judicial reform. I'm going to have an article at some point in the next few weeks, 12 ideas, 12 ways Congress can take back power from from, uh, the judiciary. But again, we need leadership. That's why we elected Trump. You know, we could say Congress is doing nothing. Of course they're going to do nothing if Trump doesn't even demand it from them, if he doesn't even ask it. He needs to ask. It starts with at least doing what you can. At least following what you have. Why are they giving into the courts when the courts didn't even issue such an order? This is lunacy. We're going to take a couple days off here, but we're going to come back to these issues. Bookmark this podcast. Don't let anyone ever tell you the courts have such power and that there's nothing we can do about it. This is the easiest thing to follow if we only had the will. Thank you all. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.